Matthew chapter 16. The title of this message is When God Loses. When God Loses. Does God lose? Can God lose? When and how might God lose? And what does that mean for our lives and the things that we experience? That's what we'll be talking about in Matthew 16. We'll be looking at the last half of the chapter. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that though it is ancient, it's immediate. Thank you that though it's written in black and white and red sometimes, it's living and active. Thank you, Jesus, that you sent the Holy Spirit to be the teacher of all things, who speaks to us, ministers a word to us, and transforms us by the power of God for the glory of God. And we ask that that would happen today in this church in both of our campuses right now, that you, Lord, would speak to us and change us for your glory. You know our comings and our goings. You know the ins and outs of our lives. You know our fears, the things that we're concerned about. You know our selfishness, the things that we're stubborn about. And we're asking that you deal with us in your kindness and in your love and your grace and by your power and the preaching of your word. Please, Lord, we pray together, anoint me to preach and proclaim your word. I I don't want to get in the way. I want to be faithful to who you are and what scripture says. So please anoint me for that, Lord, for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom and the building up of your church. We ask these things together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's what's going on in Matthew chapter 16. There's a, a shift taking place. Okay, Jesus has been in his ministry for about two years at this point. He's had the disciples with them for two years. And now there comes a profound, tangible, purposeful shift in the ministry of Christ. Because in Matthew chapter 16, he's entering into his last year of ministry before he'll go to the cross. Okay, his his third and final year of ministry. Everything is changing. Because once we get to this point in the Gospels, Jesus is resolutely going toward Jerusalem. He's heading for the cross. And it's tangible among the disciples. He starts to communicate to them for the first time that he's going to be crucified. They're struggling with the implications of that, the reality of that, and what that might mean for them and for the world. And so there's, there's a shift now in the mission of Christ. Everything is changing when we get to Matthew chapter 16. And so to introduce this shift to his disciples, Jesus takes them to an interesting place. He takes them to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is several miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And for hundreds of years before Christ, it had always been sort of a spiritual hotbed. Uh, it was in a, place, a place during that time and before Christ and even after of, of spiritual activity, false spiritual activity. It was a place where idols were worshipped. We know what scripture says about idols, that they are demonic personalities, impersonating gods. And and there was an interesting idol that was worshipped at this place, Caesarea Philippi. During the Greek period of history, the New Testament, the Gospels are in the Roman period. Prior to that, during the Greek period, a god was worshipped there, and there's a temple built to him. He was a god called Pan. And from that god is where we get our word panic, which gives you some insight into the sort of false god this was. He he was a tyrannous god. He he was a domineering false god. 
He, he was a, a false god that kept his people insecure and on edge and living in fear. We get panic from this very demonic entity who is a false god worshipped in this place, Caesarea Philippi. So, so it had this history of the worship of this god, Pan, from which we get panic. And then in the Roman period, the time in which Christ was on the earth, the Romans had built a temple there to Caesar. And the Caesars themselves, the emperors of Rome, claimed to be God. It was a false claim, of course. It was a false claim of authority in the known world. So Jesus takes his boys to this place where there had historically been false worship that brought a sort of panic into the lives of humanity and false authority that brought a sort of domineering slavery into the life of humanity, the emperors of Rome. And Jesus goes there and he interacts with his disciples in an interesting way. The, the backdrop was this giant cliff. I've, I've been there seven times. There's this giant stone cliff and in the middle of it is a cave. It's about 45 feet wide and about 50 or 60 feet high. And during the time of Christ, uh, a spring came out of that cave. It now comes out a little lower, but there's still a spring there, a beautiful spring. It's one of the four tributaries that turns into the Jordan River. And it came out from there. And the spring that came out from there was the snow that melted on Mount Hermon, the highest place in Israel. And it would melt, seep into the ground, go underground and come out in the spring where people were worshiping for all these centuries, Pan. And that, that cave was a place of sacrifice to the false god. And he was a domineering, cruel god. And if they threw their sacrifice in and it disappeared and there was no reaction, they figured, well, Pan is happy with us. And they would, of course, be dependent upon him for all sorts of things in their minds. But if the sacrifice came back out with a spring of water or blood gushed forth, then they lived in fear because they thought Pan was somehow dissatisfied with them. And they called that place in that culture the gates of hell. It was such a fearful thing. Christ takes his boys to the gates of hell where there was this God of panic and this false claim of power in the Caesar of Rome. And he stands in front of this cliff where there's five niches carved out where throughout history there have been images of false gods and all sorts of worship. And he stands there and he says to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? We're on new ground here, boys. We're on, we're on pagan ground. This is a spiritual hotbed. There's lots of gods acknowledged here. Who do the people say that I am? And interestingly enough, much like our day, the disciples responded and said, well, they have lots of opinions about you, Jesus. And they did, much as in our culture today. But then Jesus said to those who were his own, the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And he was asking all of them in the plural. And Peter of course, speaks up first because Peter always speaks first. Everybody knows a Peter, right? The first guy to say something. In my life, it's Pastor G. <laughs> Peter speaks up immediately, but Peter does well here. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In other words, in equal vernacular, you are the savior of the world. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. You, you didn't get that from your flesh. The Father revealed that to you. 
And upon this rock, as he's standing on this bedrock of Caesarea Philippi, he says, upon this rock, the proclamation of Peter, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. Upon that rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. This is the first time that Jesus ever talks about the church. He prophesies that there would be a gathering of humanity around himself, a gathering of humanity. He said, I will build my ecclesia in the Greek, a gathering, an assembly around Jesus. And he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, Jesus puts himself between humanity and panic. He says, the Prince of Peace has come. In the gates of hell, false claims of authority, those things that have kept humanity enslaved will not prevail against what? My gathering. My men and women whom I have called, who gather in my name, to and for and around me. In fact, he says that hell would be in, in a defensive state in the face of Christ's people gathering around him, the church. Because gates are a defensive mechanism, right? Gates are not offensive. Nobody comes at you with a gate. I'm going to beat you with this gate. Nobody does that. They try to keep from being beat with gates. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail. Because I have come as a prince of peace to stand between humanity and panic and false authority and deliver men and women and children from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. And I will build my church. And then he gives them a further revelation. And he tells them about when God loses. Verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Now, now here's that shift that we spoke about. Jesus is saying to his disciples, Every, everything is going to change now. We're on the way to Jerusalem. This next year is going to be a journey of sorts toward Jerusalem. And, and there's a shift coming. I'm going to be delivered up, mocked, beaten, scourged, crucified, killed. But on the third day, I'll raise again. At the time that Jesus spoke that, it was prophetic. Many of you here today need to hear that in the past tense. Because you see, your life is under the tyranny of panic false claims of authority. There's a sense of insecurity about your sin and the weight of sin and the reality of hell present. And Jesus stands between you and panic about the weight and the guilt of your sins and says now, I have been crucified. I have already risen from the dead. I'm the savior of the world. You need to know today that you have a Savior, and He loves you. Some of you are here today, you need to repent of your sins, turn to Jesus, put your faith in Him, and be saved from the gates of hell. That's why you're here today. Jesus wants to save you because God loves you. But, but I want you to notice what's inherent in that statement. It's John 3.16. You've seen it at football games. For God so loved the world that He gave 
his only begotten son, so that whoever should believe in him would never perish but have eternal life. This is where God lost. God so loved you, you, God so loved you that he gave his son. There's nothing more that he could have given than his co-eternal, pre-existent, glorious second person of the Trinity, Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place on the cross, to take for us the wrath that we deserved because of our rebellion to God and our sins. Christ died a horrific death in our place that we wouldn't have to. And he rose to new and glorious life that we might be able to as we repent of our sins and put our faith in him. But I want you to notice, it was a tremendous loss for God. God gave his son. In the face of the claims of panic on humanity and tyranny from false authority, God gave his son so that Britt might be saved, so that Tyler might be saved, so that Julie might be saved, so that Sammy might be saved so that Kate might be saved, so that we might be saved. God gave his son, was willing to suffer loss that we might be saved. And it says in Hebrews that Jesus did that, went to the cross for the joy set before him. You see, it wasn't only loss. There was tremendous gain. The salvation of men and women. But the gain was preceded by the loss. And then Peter speaks up once again. And in verse 23, excuse me, verse 22, but Peter took Jesus aside and began to reprimand him. Wait a second. (laughs) Peter, okay, just don't ever do this. Poor Peter, right? Poor Peter, it says in the Bible, Peter took Jesus aside and began to scold him, reprimand him, rebuke him. Don't ever do that. We laugh, but we do that all the time. Because Jesus just revealed to them the way of sacrifice, the way of loss, the way of the cross, which would, of course, bring great gain but there was no gain without sacrifice and the loss experienced on the cross. And Peter didn't like it because Peter, like me and like you, always wanted to win. Nobody wants loss. Peter, like you and like me, always wanted comfort and ease. Nobody likes sacrifice. Peter wanted the way of victory and glory. Nobody likes the cross. And Jesus speaks this new revelation to them and says, I'm going to experience sacrifice, loss at the cross. And Peter rebukes him. And we do it every single day. He says to him, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. In other words, not that way. Lord, We don't want to experience in our lives sacrifice and loss. We we want victory and gain and comfort and ease. 
Verse 23, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. Wow. I hate the day Jesus calls me Satan. That's a rugged day. Just a few verses earlier, it's like, Peter, blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven, God is speaking through you. And now he's all, get behind me, Satan. What he says to him is this, you're a dangerous trap to me because you are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Man. I'm embarrassed of how often that's true of my life. The Lord didn't just say that to Peter. The Lord's saying that to me. He's not calling me Satan, thankfully. But he is saying, you're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. You see, if God was willing to suffer loss in giving his son, that men and women and children might be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of beloved son, that those who were consigned to death and eternal death might be forgiven of their sins and given life and eternal life? If Christ was willing to suffer for us, then maybe God has a different perspective on the things that happen in the world, on the things that happen in our lives. Maybe our problem is we're seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Because the human point of view is, I don't want to lose. I I don't want to sacrifice. I want gain and comfort. But what the resurrection teaches us is that God is always victorious. And, And if God is the God of your life and he's leading you to a painful place of sacrifice, discomfort, non-ease. There's a sense of loss. If God is leading you, if if you're all endeavoring to obey the Lord and he's leading you into that, then you gotta know that there's coming victory because Christ did not stay in the grave. What seemed to be tremendous loss was ultimate gain. You see, what if God sees things differently? What if when my five-year-old daughter was diagnosed with cancer, it wasn't only loss, but there was tremendous gain? What if when she was re-diagnosed with cancer a year later, that it wasn't all loss? It wasn't as senseless as it seemed, but there was tremendous gain. What are the things that are going on in your life that feel right now like loss, that feel like unnecessary sacrifice, are actually the kindness of God and showing you the way of the cross that you might live in the power of the resurrection. What if? What happens when God loses? God ultimately wins. What happens when our lives become consonant with the way of the cross? There's always great gain. Look what Jesus said to his disciples in verse 24. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try just to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? 
Turn from your selfish ways. That happens initially when we come to Jesus as sinners looking for forgiveness. We've lived selfish lives, contrary to God, in rebellion to God, doing our own thing. And the the call of Scripture is that we would repent of our sins, turn to God, put our faith in Christ and what He's done, and be forgiven, be given brand new life. The burden of guilt and shame and condemnation removed. New life and eternal life given. So there's a context in which specifically he speaks to that with regards to salvation. And some of you, that's what you need today, as I already said. You need to repent of your sins, turn to God, put your faith in Jesus and be saved. But he doesn't only speak it for salvation. He continues to speak it to the Christian. He continues to say to me today, you need to turn from your selfish ways because by and large, I'm a selfish man. And what I don't want is sacrifice, loss, in the way of the cross. But when I find when I turn to scripture is that sacrifice, apparent loss, in the way of the cross is the Christian life. It doesn't mean that it's always a bummer or that we're forever losing. But let's be honest, there are profound elements of apparent loss in our lives. There are profound calls of selfless sacrifice in our lives. Jesus says explicitly to you and I today to take up our cross. But what we want to do is hang on to whatever we have. Jesus said, if you, if you try to hold on to your life, you're just going to lose it. You, you give it away to me in repentance and faith that you might be saved. And then in continual selfless following, you might be a vibrant part of my mission you give up your life in that way, you'll actually find it. And he says in that, there's great benefit. It doesn't benefit you anything to gain the world and not have the life of God functioning in you. So God says to us, turn from your selfish ways. Stop seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Because from a human point of view, the cross seemed like the worst thing that had ever happened. But on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons, was there at the garden tomb looking for him. And when she saw him, she grabbed onto him, it says, the Gospel of John. She grabbed onto him. She said, I, I do not want to experience loss like that again. I, I, I don't ever want to feel that sort of panic again. The cross was the worst thing that ever happened to see you crucified, but now you're here. I'm clinging to you. And Jesus says to her, stop clinging to me. Go and tell. And she became the first missionary to go and speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is saying to some of you today, stop clinging. Go and tell. Stop trying to preserve your life. Stop trying to avoid sacrifice, loss, in the way of comfort. Let go and go and tell. Let go and go and tell. What if the thing in your life that seems like the greatest loss is actually God's means for the greatest gain? What if what in your life seems like the biggest tragedy is is actually an act of God's kindness 
to bring you into the way of the cross for his glory. You see, many of us are there right now individually with stuff going on. But this is exactly where we're at today as a church. Because there is, for many of us, a profound sense of loss. There is for me. This is where I've stood and preached for the last eight years, this next week. And this will be my last time standing here preaching live for a while. It's people that are in this church I've known my whole life. I was born and raised in Carpinteria. There's people in here that I've known for 39 years. It's a profound sense of loss. Profound call to sacrifice. I want to stay right here. I want to cling to this. But we together have heard the Lord say, stop clinging, go and tell. And the call on your life and on my life is to explain and expose Jesus to as many people as possible. And nothing explains and exposes Jesus like the way of the cross. When our lives are characterized by willingly sacrificing, a willing loss for ultimate gain. So this season in our church feels like loss, but it's not. It's the greatest gain. More men and women are going to be delivered from the tyranny of panic and the enslavement of false authority. More men and women will be delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ and given new life because as a church, we're willing to sacrifice, lose a little, go the way of the cross that more might be saved. And as Paul said, our goal is to see as many people possible saved by all means. So we're doing everything we can possibly do for that. And you need to know that when God loses, he always wins. And what seems like loss right now is going to be a tremendous victory for the glory of God. And so think of your own life and think of us together as a church. Think about your sin issues. Think about the call to mission. And here, as I'm hearing right now from the Spirit, turn from your selfish ways. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which will enable us with grace to do that. Lord, I just, I'm simultaneously overwhelmed with a sense of my own selfishness, and yet your profound and present kindness to draw me out of that. And we're feeling that together. Lord, we say together what feels like loss in our lives and what feels like loss in our church is actually going to be great gain. We thank you that you rose from the dead. We thank you that you said to Mary Magdalene, don't cling, go tell. We thank you that you're saying that to us. Thank you that you're so authoritative and good and kind and in control that even the worst tragedies work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, we believe that. I want to see you work it out in our lives, individually and corporately, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.